Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest from March 31st, 2022, the burner phone edition I am David Plotz of CityCast here in Washington, D.C. If I sound a little logy, it is because I am still recovering from last night's cocaine-filled orgy. It was it was a doozy, last night's one. Uh, you guys must miss it. You must, must be missing it now that you are not in D.C. anymore. What are you talking about? What? You don't know about the cocaine-filled <laughs> orgies in the parking garages? Oh my gosh, between the, the key bumps that are flurrying around the head and the smell of the oil stains in the parking lot, man, it's- The orgies in the parking garages are not great. I have to say, I don't like the ones in the parking garages, John. I don't know about you. I only thought, I thought they only happened in parking garages. Sometimes I guess they could happen in the little valet booths, but um, Emily, the obviously- orgy in the valet booth. You missed this, you've missed this story. The, <laughs> Madison Cawthorn, that horrible, horrible right-wing- South Carolina, maybe? North Carolina has finally said the thing which enraged his uh, fellow Republicans in the House, which is that he said in Washington, people he respected had, had, uh, you know, were were doing cocaine and drug-filled, cocaine-filled orgies in parking lots. And had invited him. Well, first he said they were, these people, he were inviting him to orgies to do cocaine, and then he saw people doing cocaine, and then he was pressed by the Republican leader, and then he said, oh, I saw a dude 100 feet away in a parking lot. (laughs) That's what he copped to. Uh, But the Republicans are really mad at him for talking about the orgies and blaming them, saying they're implicated in the orgies. Anyway. Rock on Madison Cawthorn. Guess we know who hasn't been the orgy, Emily Bazelon (laughs) of New York Times Magazine and Yale (laughs) University Law School. I don't know how to feel about that. Actually, I I feel pretty clear how I feel about that. Um, Or it's a good cover story. John Dickerson of CBS Sunday Morning. Uh, John wore his hat, so he was incognito at the orgy. Hey, John. Hey, I mean, yeah. You could go on at length about this, except that he doesn't deserve the attention. And yet, on the other hand... This is the market that, like, anyway, whatever. It's just well, it's 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 telling. It's the only thing right. that has annoyed right. the Republican House Caucus is that none of the out deeply outrageous, terrible things that he said, or that other people like Paul Gosar, you know, depicting murdering AOC in in social media. That didn't bother them, but this this was bothersome. Sex and drugs, man. Kevin McCarthy says very frustrating. He's saying things that for which there's no evidence. I thought. Huh? Really? That's now. That's the standard. Now we're gonna we're gonna suddenly start being I like perplexed. That standard. It's a good standard. Yeah. Let's apply it widely. This week we're not going to talk about the orgies. I'm trying to keep them on the QT. We're going to talk about uh, President Biden's gaffe. Did it fundamentally change the course of the Ukraine war and what's going on in that war? Then, what is former President Trump trying to cover up about January 6th? Can anything be done to stop him? And then we'll talk about the mysterious case of Ginny Thomas and whether Clarence Thomas should have to recuse himself from Supreme Court cases or even should he be impeached. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. 
So famously, our former boss, the founder of Slate, Mike Kinsley, said a gaffe is when a politician inadvertently speaks the truth. President Biden's nine-word gaffe. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. The nine words he said off the cuff at the end of a of an otherwise successful trip to shore up European support for Ukraine was a classic gaffe, and it has unsettled foreign policy types who worry that this this desire for regime change in Russia will be read as an actual change in American policy and will make Putin all the more likely to dig in and resist any reasonable settlement of the Ukraine war. So, John, why did Biden say that? Or is there no actual why? Well, it's a good question. I was about to stumble forward and say he said it because he just got over his skis. And that's one that's probably the most likely explanation. He was speaking in an, in an it was an off script moment where he was was essentially saying this guy shouldn't be allowed to stay in power because he's such a dictator and a brute and um, he's so awful. But it was a it was the wish as the father of the thought, not the wish as the father of the policy. But the problem is you can't give a speech in when you, which you talk about the absolute strict limits of the NATO alliance, which is defensive and not aggressive. Give a whole big speech and a big trip, all making that super clear, and then at the end uh, say something that calls that into question. I wonder if it's really the, the Kinsley gaffe, because wouldn't the precise match with the Kinsley gaffe be that actual U.S. policy is regime change in Russia – and therefore, he let the cat out of the bag, essentially. I think this was hmm. – the best read I can make is that this was a personal frustration, something everybody is saying, that how can you have a leader of a country be this uh, bloodthirsty and awful, but that it wasn't actually policy, which would have made it a more typical Kinsley gaffe. I, I do think this is uh, a great case for the teleprompter. The teleprompter, it, it is good when people have to – obey a script if what they are saying is very important. It is, it's often wise to have that. But Emily, President Trump, when he was president, said so many outrageous, ludicrous, dangerous things, but none of them mattered. None of them were taken seriously. Why should President Biden be held to a different standard? Well, uh, let's also note that President Trump said wild things, though this very week in which he called for Vladimir Putin to dump dirt about Hunter Biden and President Biden. So the outrages of Trump's speech continue. Look, I mean, Biden's being held to the kind of traditional standard for a president. He doesn't have the sort of wild, irresponsible, sometimes crafty slash delusional uh, deniability that Trump had because he said so many outrageous things. And also, I mean, there is a war going on and it is a moment for being very careful. And I think that ex with this exception, which is significant, the White House and NATO have been very disciplined in how they have been talking about the war, though Biden was also, you know, taking it to Putin personally and calling him a war criminal and a butcher. I think that, John, you're right. The most likely explanation is just that, like Biden said what he thought. And my favorite Bidenism of all of this is his finally saying, I was expressing my outrage. He shouldn't remain in power. Just like, you know, bad people shouldn't continue to do bad things. That would be a better world. But it's not the world we live in. And you're not supposed to say that about a leader of a major country who is super paranoid and whose paranoia may then fuel more violence. But you know what I wonder is... 
So clearly this was a gaffe, something you shouldn't say, off message, got in the way, is representative of, a, of a, I think, a particular strain of Biden problem, which is on foreign policy. He did this during his press conference before Putin's uh, invasion of Ukraine, in which he just got a little fancy about talking about the kind of response, and, and they had to clean that up too. I think when you've been involved in foreign policy as long as he has, perhaps he feels a little overconfident about what he can and can't say. But I really wonder how much of a blunder this was. I mean, Putin is clearly deranged and has a set of ideas that are impervious to facts and reality. And so the paranoia that he feels about the encroachments of the West, I mean, it was in part if not in whole, the reason he launched this war. So a single statement seems to me to be not that much more contributory to his paranoia. So I wonder if, while this was clearly a gaffe, I don't I don't really right. get how much right. of a gaffe it really was. Well, I mean, isn't right. part of the problem that it just gives Putin or whoever wants to defend Putin or just criticize Biden an excuse to do so? Yeah. I mean, even if, if it's a very small drop in the ocean of Putin's grievances, like you sort of pretend and blow it up. Yeah, you don't want to make an unforced error. And that is definitely what this is. I wonder what you all think about Mike Morrell, the former CIA director, said what might be more dangerous is is that Biden re-upped the idea that this is totalitarianism versus freedom. And that if there's an ultimate peace agreement, it's probably not going to be able to be something that fits into that frame, that that's too grand a way of thinking about the U.S. obligations in the world, and that that actually boxes the U.S. and its allies in, because there might be a lot of people who are willing to go with a peace deal that allows, you know, as bad as it may be, Putin to get away with some things, and that that, that U.S. policy is what's more constraining than this single gaffe. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this question about where, what the disposition of the peace agreement is going to be. I presume, I mean, all wars end, and this war will end, whether it ends in month or or 25 years from now we have no idea at this moment but what should we be rooting for emily in terms of peace agreement should we just be rooting for the ukrainians to decide what the disposition of it is that it is it's it's not up to us to say the agreement needs to be x y and z it's up to the ukrainians to decide like if they're willing to give up you know will they give up all of the donbass region and and give up mariupol and and just say that's fine as long as this war is over, that's okay. It is up to Ukraine and Ukraine's sovereignty, and they're the ones defending themselves. Since we're not fighting the war and NATO's not fighting the war, I'm not sure how NATO and the U.S. justifies dictating tougher terms. At the same time, it's like a big deal for Russia to have a land bridge to, the, to Crimea. There's lots of natural gas and shale in that part of Ukraine, I've learned. Um, let's not have any illusions that these were things I knew before yesterday. But it seems actually, like, significant <laughs> strategically. Same, same, same. Okay, good. I sort of assumed, oh, it's just a little piece of the country. It's only, like, it's less than 10% of their territory. Fine. Maybe it's fine. But it's not fine, actually. It's, like, a big strategic difference whether Ukraine continues to control that area. So I do think that there are these longer term consequences for Ukraine and for the world. And, you know, the main thing is, can Ukraine be safe going forward? You know, will Ukraine in some way jeopardize its own future by making too much of a compromise right now? And yet, like, this war is devastating. 
I mean, there is this question about like, is the goal to make it appealing for Putin to negotiate or is the goal to make it so miserable that Putin negotiates? And I don't know that there's anything that can be done to make Putin miserable. Like he is clearly willing to tolerate an enormous amount of suffering within Russia itself. His control of information sources within Russia is so profound that he doesn't have to worry too much about popular support at this point. The kind of oligarchic revolution that I think some people wanted that with Putin's oligarchs overthrowing him in order to to restore their yachts and restore their their apartments in London doesn't seem to have happened yet. And so it is it's hard to see how Putin I mean it's already gone so badly for him. It, it's not clear that any amount of badness in this war would make him retreat from it and give up on it. And that's a very worrisome position I feel like. Yeah, he has a notoriously high pain threshold. And so it's his pain threshold against uh, the allied countries and and then obviously what the Ukrainians can withstand. They've already withstood so much. Two things I would add. One, the effect this is having on the world food situation. The World Food Program buys 50% of the grain it needs from Ukraine. Prices at the World Food Program have gone up $71 million a month because of this conflict. Countries like Egypt and Lebanon get 80% of their grain from, from Ukraine. I got all of this out of the New York Times. So again, like Emily, I'm not <laughs> pretending to have had lifetime knowledge of this. But when you when you think of the additional effects and the pressure that puts on ending this war, and finally, the other point is, again, quoting Mike Morrell, he talks to a lot of companies all over the world. They are all putting pressure on their leaders to end these sanctions because they have are affecting the companies and economies in all these different countries, which is part of the reason Biden was over in Europe last week trying to keep everybody on board with these sanctions. But there's a great deal of pressure. If it's pain versus pain, there's a lot of pressure on the other parts of the world to come to some kind of agreement to just be done with uh, the effects of this war. But why, God, we shouldn't end these sanctions. My goodness, should these sanctions should not end. I mean, you cannot have some someone who behaves this recklessly and with this much impunity gets away with it. It just can't, it can't be. It destroys the very kind of fundamentals of the system. The system becomes what Anne Applebaum has been warning us about. It becomes a, sort of an autocrat's playground, if that's the case. Yeah. Norms and rules and and sort of the the, the proper correct behavior and and sovereignty are are illusory. That's terrible. We we got to continue. Well, but the question then is what's I guess, what's the line? So, for example, if Putin re- retreats to the Donbas region, does all of this pressure create a situation, a diplomatic situation, in which countries say, "Look, uh, it's not good. Obviously, it's not good, but." Uh, let's take a deal that gives him that, especially if somehow there's pressure from inside Ukraine to take such a deal. Um, All of these pressures, it's not so much giving up sanctions for nothing. It's giving up sanctions for not very much. Right. Right. I think if the Ukrainians come out and say, we, we want this war over, we want you to stop sanctioning Russia so that they'll behave themselves. I think that's okay. I but think that's okay. Ukrainians, it's not a great solution, but the Ukrainians have to ask for it. Well, also, it seemed to me that the last part of this that Ukraine will want to end are the sanctions, right? Ukraine will want the bombing to stop. They're not going to want the support and the punishment, the sanctions 
um, allow for to end quickly, right? I mean, that should be the last thing. And maybe it should continue for longer. I mean, there is this problem, which is obviously what we're talking about, of like short versus medium and long term results and the lessons and what Putin does the next time and just all the signals and the problems of deterrence here. But I think the sanctions ha- will be part of whatever the peace solution is, because Russia will not agree to it unless the sanctions are lifted. Yes, so it has to be right. part of it. Um, I, one, one question that I have about how this war is going, and uh, I don't know that any of us will have the answer, but I'm curious why there's been no Ukrainian campaign of sabotage and terrorism within Russia itself. Why have the Ukrainians not tried, at least in some small way, to take the war into Russia? I assume there are Ukrainians who live in Russia. I assume that their that border is porous enough that their Ukrainians could get in, and there could be some attempts at at actually causing havoc in Russia itself. But there hasn't been, and I wonder if that's you know they feel like oh they'll lose they'll lose moral support of the world or. They're just unable to do it or why? I mean, if you're trying to appeal to sympathy from the Russian people, I'm not sure that that is a smart move, right? I mean, that kind of sabotage and guerrilla warfare, you have to carry it out for a really long time. And in the limited examples I can think of where anyone succeeds, they do it on their own territory. It doesn't work very well when it's incursions into the other country. So maybe they're making a cost-benefit decision about not doing it. Slate Plus members, you get a bonus segment on the GabFest every week, we do a bonus segment. This week, very useful, extremely useful one. It's going to change your life. It's if you needed to go into hiding, how would you do it? We're going to talk about that. And you can get that just by becoming a Slate Plus member. It's a great deal. You get member-exclusive episodes and extra segments from us. You get no ads on any podcast. You get unlimited reading on the Slate site for your membership. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus and become a member today. This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Robert Costa and Bob Woodward in the Washington Post revealed that the January 6th committee has phone records from the White House that show a seven hour and 37 minute gap in President Trump's, former President Trump's official phone logs from that day. There's also a report in The Guardian that President Trump did make phone calls during that gap. We already knew that, that the gap existed. We knew that there were phone calls during that gap, but that some, at least some of the calls he made during that period were made with White House phones, suggesting that, in fact, the official 
records may have been tampered with, that those calls were never recorded. John, we already know that Trump made a lot of phone calls during those seven hours and 37 minutes when he allegedly made no phone calls. The presumption was he's using burner phones and using phones that wouldn't be logged. And that's that's a habit of his. It's well known. What What is surprising about this seven hour and 37 minute gap? Or is it not really surprising or important? This whole thing matters because of Donald Trump, right? Because you have a president at the center of two things. One, the instigation of the riot. And then two, the dereliction of duty as commander in chief in doing nothing about the riot for a couple of hours. Those are two of the big things that are at issue and that they're trying to find out. And so seven hours of missing behavior by the key person involved in those two derelictions of duty is crucial. But it's not surprising because he came into office undermining and undercutting the um, Records Acts and the various norms and laws that rule presidential records. That then filtered out throughout the administration, advisors using their own private email accounts, using messaging systems that deleted messages shortly after they were sent. And so the question is whether this was standard operating procedure or whether they did something specific to cover up in the moment or cover up when the records were supposed to be handed over to the January 6th committee. But all of that is um, is really important in terms of, A, what he did or didn't do, and then whether there's a new set of crimes here or potential crimes, which is cover up after the fact. So there were other shockers this week in the January 6th investigation, Emily. There was Judge Carter finding in a ruling about a case involving Trump lawyer John Eastman that evidence strongly suggests that Trump committed crimes of fraud to overturn the election. This related to whether there was attorney-client privilege on their communication. Another sort of utterly surprising or unsurprising fact that Mark Meadows, the White House Chief of Staff, is accused pretty credibly by one of the January 6th planners of literally helping to plan to instruct the January 6th crowd to descend on the Capitol. That's always been depicted as something totally separate from the White House, had nothing to do with any of the, the, the organizing of the actual speech that President Trump did. But here you have an accusation that Mark Meadows was, in fact, telling the planners, here's how to go to the Capitol. Here's where you, why should, you should go to the Capitol. Um, with the Eastman ruling, Emily, is that, what does that mean? What does the Judge Carter's finding mean for both Eastman and for Trump? On its face, what Judge Carter's ruling means is that Eastman is going to turn over the documents he was trying to prevent from turning over because Eastman decided not to appeal, which is interesting because if this turned into a question about whether any of Ginny Thomas's texts or other communications were, you know, part of what Eastman might have to overturn in that case were to have been appealed to the Supreme Court, that would have been a mess for Clarence Thomas uh, to preview our next topic. So it's interesting that we're not going to see that showdown happen. Instead, Trump and Eastman are going to see these materials turned over. What, you know, the sort of bigger legal question is about criminal liability for former President Trump and other folks surrounding him. Judge Carter ruled that Trump was likely to have committed a crime based on a much lower standard than beyond a reasonable doubt. We're in a civil proceeding. This is just about whether you're turning evidence over. It's not a criminal finding. It does, however, I think, put some more pressure on the Justice Department 
to think about or explain why there's no criminal investigation. If indeed that is the case, it's possible there is such an investigation and it's part of the January 6th, you know, wider set of activities of the FBI. On the other hand, we haven't really heard anything about specifics from the Justice Department and criminal liability. And so it's I sort of doubt the idea that it's like all quietly going on. You doubt the idea that there is quiet, some quiet investigation of Trump that we don't of know this about. in particular. Yeah. I mean, I think if the Justice Department was seriously looking into this, like someone, <laughs> Steve Bannon, Mark Meadows, like someone would have squawked because they would try to use it as, you know, against the Biden administration by speaking up. I would think we would know. And you don't think those subpoenas this week or the, the reporting in the post about the subpoenas that, that suggest that, go, that are looking at the funders of January 6th, that that doesn't suggest that there might be more going on than we've, than we've known. Well, no, that's good. I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, that suggests they're widening their net and it's possible they're moving up the chain, which is sometimes how criminal investigations go. So I'm glad you reminded me of that. I just don't think we have evidence yet that the investigation is going up to Trump himself. I really recommend this piece in Lawfare by Ben Wittes about Carter's ruling. I learned a ton from it. And Ben also raises a more technical problem for the Justice Department, which has to do with the Office of Legal Counsel and the standard for whether a law of general applicability also applies to the president if it doesn't expressly state that it does, and if the law arguably involves the president's constitutional duties. It seems like a terrible Office of Legal Counsel opinion to me. I absolutely want the president to be bound by all those laws, but that's sitting there too. And I guess the last thing I'll say about this that I find really helpful is this was, for me, clarifying and reminding me what the crimes at issue here are. We're talking about two federal statutes. One forbids the corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding, and then the other criminalizes conspiring to defraud the United States. Those are real federal crimes. We should not want people to do those things. And I just think it's important to kind of keep that front and center. I think for me, the thing that keeps intruding or complicating this is that Calls to gather and protest in Washington, like, that's a classic form of free speech. And so there is some trickiness in thinking about when the planning became something that was conspiring to obstruct the vote count and potentially violent as opposed to just, like, planning a protest. And, of course, that's the excuse of all the organizers. Like, oh, we were just going to walk and we didn't really have any other plans. And I think a lot of evidence has come to light that that's not true. Well, I don't think I mean, to me, the dangerous obstruction of the of the vote count did not occur with the rioters, because I actually think once the rioters entered the picture, like it was much more likely the vote actually was going to proceed and it would go well. I mean, it was it was going to get delayed by their chaos, but the chaos made it more likely uh, that Biden's election would be affirmed. I thought it was the to me, the, the, the dangerous part is trying to strong arm Pence and all the other legal back channels. Those are the truly dangerous things that Trump was doing that are more criminal than encouraging the mob. Yeah, you're totally right about that. And then you get into this problem of criminal liability, which I find deeply frustrating, which is that Trump is so semi-supposedly delusional that maybe he didn't really believe he'd lost the election, even though every single advisor he had who was worth anything was making that very clear. He had a bunch of other people whispering in his ear telling him otherwise. Maybe he just didn't really get it. And so he didn't have the requisite criminal mindset to be held liable. And that I just find deeply frustrating because it's like he gets off the hook in this way for being 
like uniquely irresponsible. Well, but isn't that part of what was so interesting, intriguing, and we've already learned something about it? I mean, it already looks like Eastman basically was knowingly advising breaking the Electoral Count Act in his exchange with Pence's lawyer. And yes, he called that a relatively minor violation yes. of federal law, I believe. So part <laughs> of part of what might be disclosed in the seven hours as they piece it back together and as they have interviews with people is the knowingness that the president knew. And even if there's not criminal liability, it's worth remembering there is an entire system that has guarded the President Trump in his breaches with norms and laws all across his presidency. And that even after multiple, multiple, multiple instances of knowing that what he was doing was wrong, people rushed to his defense and that that was going on all the way up until the inauguration, even when it became as acute as having a riot on the Capitol. And so this reminds the extent to which it was both centered on the president, but also that there were a host of enablers who are participants, many of whom are still in Congress. And then finally... He's still the leader of the Republican Party and the likely nominee for 2024, despite all of the failures. And and these aren't just small failures. This is, according to Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, who used to speak more plainly about this in the immediate aftermath of the 6th, this is not only instigating the riot, but then failing to do anything once it happened. And despite those two critical failures of doing his job, he's the nominee of the, or he's the likely nominee of the party. I would also note that one thing about this seven-hour gap is it does point to state of mind. You don't create a gap. You don't hide what you're doing if you don't think what you're doing is wrong. If Trump knows that what he's doing is wrong, he you would think he would he would attempt to cover it up, and that's what a big gap in the record suggests. I want to end this topic, actually, with a kind of philosophical question that the three of us have argued about repeatedly with me being a very unsatisfying person to argue with about it. I find myself, we are now more than a year past January 6th, just months away from the January 6th investigation in the House being shut down and memory hold by the Republicans once they take control of the House. We have a Republican Party that is completely unwilling to hold its leader to account, completely unwilling to do it. We have an overwhelming knowledge about what happened, not all the knowledge. We know a huge amount about what happened. But yet there is no accountability. We have all truth, no reconciliation, and no accountability. What, as a nation, can we do? What can be done, given this situation? You have completely different universes that people are living in, with one side simply refusing to acknowledge the truth of what happened, or acknowledging it and being like it doesn't matter. So how can we actually get beyond this? Well, I don't know about beyond. I'm not ready for beyond. I mean, I think that what the January 6th committee is doing is really important. And yes, it's drip drip, but it's a super important set of drips. And actually, we don't have the whole truth or really anything close to it. And the more we learn, the worse it gets, and they should keep going. And second of all, we should be protecting the country from another president like this who usurps power and threatens our whole system in this way. And we have not done that. And I'm sorry to raise that at a moment where there is such partisan polarization because it means that I'm effectively telling the Democrats they have to spend their political capital and their legislating time on this boring structural matter that they don't seem super interested in, especially in the Senate and in the White House. But it's really, really important. If Trump is going to run for office again, 
we should have more protections in place. Otherwise, like, otherwise what? I mean, it just seems really obvious that the conditions would be right for this to repeat were he elected. And that is not a risk we should take. The only answer I can give to you, David, that is not a satisfying one either, is that I think I'm quoting Stephen Skronik, the political scientist at Yale here, where he looked at the movements in political realignment and talked about charismatic dissenters, which is essentially the way this changes is if some Republican who's not one of the usual suspects, a Mitt Romney or even a Susan Collins or comes out and says, and you saw this a little bit with Karl Rove, although he's even in the in the usual suspect category when he wrote in the Wall Street Journal several uh, around the January 6th anniversary, he said there is a greater burden on the Republican Party to clean up the systemic behavior that was was built up and calcified around Donald Trump, that it requires that there's a greater responsibility for Republicans and for someone who you wouldn't expect to say, you know what, this has gone too far, not just his specific behavior, but the blind eye turning, the I didn't see the tweet, the redefinition of the norms of the presidency in order to protect themselves that somebody needs to stand up and say that has to change. I guess I'm skeptical, John, that it could be a charismatic dissenter or even like three, because like you said, there is a small group of usual suspects and we're already discounting them. You need group action here, right? That's the whole problem. It's always been the problem the Republicans have had in this with, with Trump. Yeah. Charismatic dissent only works if the charismatic dissenter is so charismatic that they pull other people with them. I mean, um, Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene and the others behave the way they do because you can be an independent person with a massive following and get lots of money and not rely on the connectivity of party that used to create movements of people rather than individuals. So I agree. It's it's the only thing I can come up with, and I recognize that it's a a weakness here. But I guess my big point is that the obligation overwhelmingly rests on the Republican Party. Trump is the charismatic center of the party. And as long as that's true, the dissenter would have to be more loom larger than Trump. And that is really hard to envision. Yeah, I mean, I do think when the history of this era is written uh, many, many centuries from now or many, many decades from now, it is going to be the I like your faith that we're going to be here many, many centuries from now. That's good. Well, Sorry. I think there will Continue. be somebody. <laughs> it may be, be the institutional failure tablets. of the Republican Party. Well, it'll be like, you know how we write the history of Rome and, and the, the, uh, the collapse of the Senate and the failure of Republican leadership in the Senate? And that was all written 1,500 years later or actually more like 1,900 years later? Well, that's what's going to happen. They will, this, will, this is a documented era, and they will write 1,900 years from now about the failure of our Senate, the failure of our Republicans, and the way in which extremists have cowed and... and written out the reasonable people and the reasonable people failed to rise to the occasion because it's very difficult to do it. And the few people who did have suffered enormously. I mean, you think about Mike Pence, Mike Pence's one small act, small and small and extremely obligatory, obligatory, but you know, frankly, like required a bit of courage. Like it did require a little bit of courage. And for that one small act of little bit of courage, I mean, Mike Pence is, is persona non grata. You have, Mitch McConnell, who'd given up on this, who Mitch McConnell, who stood up a little bit, Kevin McCarthy, like stood up around January 6th, totally, 
capitulated. I mean, it's what's his name in in Georgia now being Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, Raffensperger, and and the governor both being flayed. Although there is some for doing what is only moderately right. I mean, it's it's the the party is is a is an incredible failure engine, and um, this country will not survive it. I suspect there is some evidence that that Kemp might survived despite the fact Donald Trump yes. and is trying to run Purdue against him. He's raising much more money than David Purdue, who Trump is backed to unseat him. GapFest listeners, do you know that we're doing a new episode every month called GapFest Reads, where every month one of us is sitting down with the author of a book that we really like and having, uh, we hope, a, an interesting, engaging, slightly deeper conversation about that book. And we've now done it several times. And we have one coming up on April 17th. I'll be talking to Amy Bloom, the author of In Love. It's a really complicated book that's beautiful and funny and enraging all at once, which is hard to pull off. So get the book, read it with us, and listen in April 17th in the new GabFest Reads. GabFest Reads, Reads, Reads. John, can you get a sound effect? Thank you. (laughs) Step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. What to make of Ginny Thomas? What to make of Ginny <laughs> Thomas, Emily? That is the question. You can make a hat or a brooch. A hat. I bet she has a hat and a brooch. Ginny Thomas seems like a woman who would have a hat and a brooch. Some strands of Or a pterodactyl. <laughs> I get the reference. Chief, this weather bulletin just came off the wire. Johnny, what can you make out of this? This? Well, I can make a hat. What a brooch, a pterodactyl. Could you, um. Yeah, okay. Uh, I just want to make sure that anybody who hadn't gotten the reference on the first two, <laughs> that I completed the um, scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I spent time so... in a Turkish prison. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry, Emily, go ahead. That's okay. I'm glad the references are continuing to roll out. I, uh, yeah, I mean, the texts that were released from... Ginny Thomas are bananas. Like, they're both bananas in the way that they reveal her thinking, her lack of punctuation, and then the way in which her role, you know, just puts Clarence Thomas in this very compromised position. I just, it's really remarkable. It's remarkable that he did not recuse himself, in particular, in the case that already has reached the Supreme Court about whether the January 6th committee could have documents. You have to decide to imagine that he did not know that uh, Ginny Thomas was playing this kind of role. She has said that he didn't know anything about her political activities. On the other hand, he has talked about them being basically like melded into one being. I believe those are his three words. I mean, how how preposterous just... is it? Sorry. Yes. Can I just no, interrupt on this? I mean, it is it is ludicrous for people to think that they are telling the truth when they say, oh, they don't consult. They're having independent professional lives. You couldn't – you never believe that of the Clintons. 
Why would anyone believe that of any married couple, least of all one whose overt political actions are so deeply aligned? The kabuki of pretending that they're not aligned is infuriating and weird. It's like, yes, they um, undoubtedly they talk about all this stuff. Well, also That's every. <laughs> It's, it's crazy credulity. to pretend not. Is that the phrase you're yeah, reaching that, for? Yeah. Well, also right, and yet we have no direct evidence of it at the same time. But well, it happens in the in the marital bed, in the marital bedroom, in the marital text chain. But also, I I would add to this that if you read the texts, another thing it strains is uh, is one's attempt to come up with a, a metaphor to explain just how bananas they are. I mean, it's not just it's just it's not just one bunch of bananas. It's not just one tree of bananas. It is a plantation of bananas stretching beyond the limits of human sight. The Hubble telescope couldn't see the size of the banana plantation that this is on because in these texts she's talking about the 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 white hat sting operation with watermarked ballots that are going to that are going to take that's going to take place in 12 key battleground states and Biden and his his crime family are going to be sent to Guantanamo. This is the furthest edge of madness and the rapidity and and pelting that that um the White House chief of staff is taking from this constant this constant number of texts, which then is also framed in apocalyptic terms. This is literally second coming language being used in the fight between good and evil. So it is impossible to imagine that anybody who has lost their senses in believing the things that are the subject of the tweets and who says it with apocalyptic fervor is at home struck mute around their best friend and spouse it, it does indeed strain credulity. Yeah. Right. So then we're left with this institutional problem, which is even larger than the particular problem of Thomas's role in the court. And that is the fact that Supreme Court justices individually decide when to recuse themselves, when not to hear cases. And there is no review of their decisions. There is just zero institutional accountability. And that is just a terrible way to do business. These are incredibly powerful people. They should not be able to make these decisions with no way to review them. The court needs to come up with its own rules that bind, at least bind the justices to the same code of judicial ethics that other judges have to follow. And that also comes up with some way to review the decisions they're making. They could put a bunch of retired Supreme Court justices in charge of a, you know, reviewing. There them. are no retired they, Supreme Court justices. They're all dead because these people <laughs> stay on the court forever. So that's Stephen Breyer is about to be retired <laughs> be and, a man of and one. hopefully not dead. And David, you're really good at coming up with things for Stephen Breyer to do. So you can just do a whole riff on it and we'll be all set. You could have appellate court judges. There are there are ways. This is not this is a problem that has solutions and they just choose not to and, solve it. And the bigger problem is one that John Roberts talked about when he got into a spat with President Trump when President Trump referred to Obama judges and and Robert says there are no Obama judges in judicial independence is so important and then at the end of the year when he wrote his I guess letter from the Chief Justice which I think goes out with his Christmas cards he said that the independence of the judiciary was uh, was under threat and under attack Amy Coney Barrett gave a speech at the McConnell Institute about saying that that judges should bend over backwards to make sure that people don't misunderstand a political or personal connection with their rulings. Why? Because if the court is undermined by people thinking it's just another place for politics and personal influence, then 
the rulings won't have any weight in the American system. And if John Roberts wants to keep talking about the Supreme Court as the only functioning branch of government, then it will no longer be the functioning branch of government. And so this goes well beyond, or I should say, Thomas's individual decisions about his relationship with his wife and the cases before him have this much larger impact, which existed before this case, before these texts were learned. This was a concern of many members on the court, including the chief justice. I bet Roberts is just furious about this. But Right, but is he doing so anything what? about it? He can't do anything yeah. about this particular instance, but he could push to change the rules. Why is Ginny Thomas famous and influential? She does seem like a garden variety lunatic fringe person. Is she influential for anything in and of herself, or is she influential simply because she is, not simply, she is married to a very influential, powerful person in, who who more importantly is at the center of a web of clerks and their allies, a conservative legal world and policy world that is very important. And But I don't understand why her voice would be one that anyone would care about. I mean, it's impossible to untangle, but she seems like a good organizer. I mean, she's put together these awards ceremonies right. that have right. been influential in the right wing movement. She seems like she gathers smart and influential people around her. She's a kind of magnet and she has been an effective activist in a number of ways. She's raised a lot of money. It's hard to know whether all that would have happened completely independently. But I think in her world, she has real sphere of influence. I don't think we have to discount that. You know what's interesting about there is this accusation that that Republicans have been making incessantly about the deep state, the democratic deep state and and whenever that accusation I hear that accusation from them right, I'm like, "Oh yeah, because it's it holds triple true for you, friends." The organized conservative movement on especially as it relates to law is the most effective network of power in the United States the Federalist Society, the conservative clerks, the kind of effort to take over the Supreme Court. It is an m- incredible triumph of networking and and planning. And not everybody is working with everyone at every minute, and it's not all a single plan. But the overall kind of effect of it is, it is like when you talk about, oh, that's the deep state. That's the deep state. That's like yeah, the, I- the legal state is is kind of organized around that that world and it was really effective well and and conservatives had to create these external structures because they don't have the actual deep state which is to say the bureaucracy is not filled with a bunch of movement conservatives hopefully it's not filled with a bunch of movement liberals either it may have its own challenges it may be worthy of of uh, of comment and criticism for its own reasons but the the conservatives felt like oh my gosh there's this huge these all these apparatus the media the bureaucracy is all against us so we have to create our own structures super successful in doing that and when you're a politician those structures are what create the pressure campaigns that get other lawmakers to work that keep stuff on the front page that that raise money. They're super important to get elected and to carry out politics that ends up creating the pressure that ends up getting Supreme Court nominees uh, confirmed, but also gets policy through. And in the old days, used to make senators go with you or go against you. So so she had a lot of power in all these ways that are super uh, useful. Can I just say one other quick thing about the investigation, which is that these texts end in, I think, November, which means... They didn't obviously end. She was full of passion. So what happened to all the other texts? Did did Mark Meadows just not turn them over? Uh, does the committee have them and they're not telling us? 
And the reason these matter is not just because any old person can send in crazy texts to to a um, White House chief of staff. There's nothing wrong with that. But it, it does suggest that Virginia Thomas probably has lots of knowledge about what the White House was up to and could be a good fact witness distinct from her own issues that she may create for her her husband on the bench. I just want to go back to your point about the Federalist Society, David, because I think another key part of this to point out is that the people who created the Federalist Society in the 80s also didn't have the law schools. They could see that law schools were moving in a kind of mainstream liberal direction, and they created this basically like rebellion. I mean, that's not really the right word because it's so establishmentarian. Is that a word? Anyway, but uh, you know what I mean. There, it, it's not like you know they were it's all the there. Counter Reformation. Thank you. <laughs> they were in their suits having meetings, not like barnstorming in any way. But they managed to be incredibly effective with this network that did a couple of things. It raised a ton of money from people interested in the goals of changing the composition of the court. It also harnessed the really important and crucial free speech protections in universities to allow for lots of meetings and discussions and debates. And, you know, I bring this up in part because Yale Law School has had a whole set of questions around a Federalist Society event recently involving the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is this really right-wing group. And while I absolutely support the right of the Federalist Society and ADF to speak at law school, I think it's completely essential to universities to have those free speech rules when you create a fair forum to let people talk. It is also really interesting that an organization that in a lot of ways has very anti-democratic goals, right? I mean, you could argue we're talking at this point about a form of minority rule. It's able to be effective in part by taking advantage of the freedom universities create to express, to raise money, to, to meet and organize. I mean, taking advantage, they don't take advantage of it. They use it. Like taking yeah. advantage implies, I mean, that's, it's there for that purpose. I don't mean take advantage in a pejorative way. Okay, it's just I see, that I see. they're, yeah, yeah. right? right? Like, right. it's there. It's part yeah. of their strategy. And we need it to be there for all kinds of reasons. But it is also having this impact. I do think it's like a, an interesting question about whether whether they're radicals or whether they're conservatives. Like, if you looked at this as a personality type, are the people who are kind of creating this network, are they the radicals of our time? Or are they actually the conservatives of our time? That's a great question. I mean, they are trying to to wait. So I guess let's see. I mean, there's can we have it both ways here? I mean, they are extremists, right? Their views are outside the mainstream in terms of how they want to change the law. They are trying to freeze the country in place in a lot of ways or pull it back to an earlier time. And so in that sense, you could argue that they're sort of Berkey and conservatives, right? Can you get to be revanchists? But if you do un, if you do radical things in the service of limited conservatism, then then you're not a conservative. If you're breaking the rules, then it seems to me you can't say you're a conservative just because you think your goals are. And also, by the way, in the end, lots of people have traded their con- what would have been traditionally conservative ideas for power. That seems right. I go back to sort of a David Plotz principle, which I come back to all the time, which is that who's having fun. And I, I think when I look at what the right has done around the law, they're ha- they've had a lot of fun doing it. And the left needs to find a way to have as much fun doing that, what they want to do as the right has had recently. And, they, and once they do, 
they'll 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 be able to kind of win this back. But for now, the conservatives got it. Let us go to cocktail chatter when uh, you're having a drink with a radical friend, a conservative friend, a authoritarian friend, a communard friend. What are you going to be chattering about, John Dickerson? I'm going to be, uh, it's a pastiche a little bit. Um, So I'll just do three uh, quick things. One is um, Great Times piece this week about um, the the oddities within uh, Wikipedia. So go read the Times piece. And the other is Morning Brew, which is a... um, one of the many digests I get, and it's more about business and the markets, but has all kinds of, has a great breadth of odd and interesting things in it. And then finally, I've been playing Elden Ring, which is a video game, which has been mentioned a lot in the world because it's this massively open environment. And I haven't played video games kind of successfully for a long time. And this has been a wonderful distraction and respite from this weary world. Um, so thank you to the creators of Elden Ring and anybody who is into the, that kind of immersive experience. I would, I would recommend it if you've been away for it for a while, as I had been. That is a real potpourri of a chatter. That was, I don't know if I would take a cocktail party, whether that would have yeah, been. Yeah, you'd, well, I'd be, I would have enjoyed that. I would have been like, conversations, wait. It would be great. It would yeah, just he tur- like, he'd needed... turning away. John's turning my, away. To I think else. my attempt was really to, to, to remove everybody from the room by talking about three <laughs> super random things. <laughs> Find something to disappoint everyone. Emily, what's your chatter? I was in the Netherlands last week, which was so much fun. And I went to the Anne Frank house, which is a very moving memorial to Anne Frank. And this visit and conversations I had while I was in the Netherlands filled me with rage about a book called The Betrayal of Anne Frank that was published either earlier this year or late last year which is based on, according to a lot of Dutch historians, extremely shaky, maybe just like zero evidence, and making an accusation that it was a prominent Jewish notary who betrayed Anne Frank's family. The Dutch publisher has apologized for the book and pulled it from the shelves. There's now a 69-page refutation that six historians and academics have written debunking the book's claims. And I just found myself so frustrated. I feel like if you are going to make this kind of accusation, you should really, really, really know that you are basing it on credible evidence. Like there are certain things that are really explosive and you have an extra responsibility. And it just seems like this book, these supposed investigators did not do that at all. And I just, it just, it just really, really frustrated and infuriated me, frankly. So don't read this book, The Betrayal of Anne Frank, but do go to the Anne Frank house if you are ever in Amsterdam. Okay, I'm going to do a potpourri of two. One, have you guys heard of the HBO show Beforeigners? Or Beforeigners? No. Have oh, either wait, of you heard? Yes, yes. Is it good? It's wild. <laughs> it's, it's wild. It's kind of great. It, so it's, it's this HBO show. It, there are two seasons of it. I've just finished the first season. It's about Norway, right? It's about Norway. And the okay. premise is that for reasons that are not at all explained, People from Norway's past are just washing up on the beach in Oslo every night. So from three eras, there's Stone Age people, then there are people from the 19th century, and most importantly, there are people from the, the Old Norse era, the Viking era. And then there's a kind of 
set of murders or deaths that are that a cop one of two a pair of cops one of whom is modern norwegian the other of whom is a is a viking warrior who's now become a cop have to solve and it's just it's really fun and really weird it it's depiction of norse life and the kind of nature worshiping heavy metal kind of warrior spirit of it is so deeply appealing and magnificent and uh I tore through it. So, before oh, I'm so excited to watch this. I someone mentioned it and did a pretty good job of describing it, but I didn't quite get it. Now I totally get it. It's it's really weird. It's really weird. Then the second thing, I just want to toot uh, my other hat. Wear my other hat. Put my other hat on. I think everyone who listens to the Gaffes knows I also run a company called CityCast, which is creating daily local podcasts and newsletters for cities around the country. And we launched a year ago. We just celebrated our one-year anniversary this month. And it's going really well. And I just want to come back to you, GabFest listeners. If you are not listening to CityCast in your city, you're missing out. We're now in Denver, Chicago, Salt Lake City, Houston, Pittsburgh. This week, we launched in Las Vegas. We're coming to Boise and D.C. and Philly and Portland and uh, a bunch of other cities, really Madison, Wisconsin, really soon. And these podcasts will make you feel more connected to your city. They will fill you with love and curiosity about your city. They may make you angry sometimes, but always in a way that will help you feel more connected to whatever city you live in that we're doing it in. And we have incredible newsletters. So Please subscribe to CityCast. If you live in any of those cities, try it. Email me at davidplotz at gmail.com if you have any questions about it. And if you also want to come work with us, we have a ton of jobs open for podcast producing, for newsletter writing, for other various other things at citycast.fm slash jobs. So, you know, we've been here a year. It's going really well. We love it. Um, and we want you to listen. I am so excited for you to launch in Philadelphia. Then I can keep in touch with my my past city, which seems almost like even better. Exactly. Listeners, thanks for sending chatter to us. You tweet them to us at at SlateGabFest or you email us them at GabFest at Slate.com. This is something that is intriguing you that you want to share with the GabFest world. And our listener chatter this week is from Andre Walker. Hey, GabFest. This is Andre Walker in Chicago. And my chatter is a follow-up to a recommendation from last week's show. After listening to the show with Ruth Marcus' chatter for the book, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, my wife and I later attended a performance in Chicago that seemed to be the perfect response. Entitled, All the Sex I've Ever Had, the show is currently being performed at the Museum of Contemporary Art here in Chicago by a group called Mammalian Diving Reflex. In contrast to the jaded millennials in Ruth's story, the cast is composed entirely of seniors, 65 and older, all non-actors. Each performer autobiographically recounts the complex role that sex has played in their own lives from their youth to the present day, and despite some difficult experiences, each has maintained a healthy appreciation of sex as a form of human connection and expression, as well as a source of pleasure. It's a frank and moving production that's also very hopeful. That sounds really cool. We started with orgies. We ended with <laughs> all the sex in the world. <laughs> all the sex I've ever had. In yes. a parking lot. But all lot. the sex in the... <laughs> with cocaine. That is our show. That's our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. 
Joss and Bridget got to see each other this week. That was exciting. That was the big news of the week. They got to hang out. June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest. Tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you at the Orgy next week. Hello, Slate Plus. I don't, John just said something. I don't even know what he was John saying. A little, a little wacky today. Yeah. Very today. sweet. I don't. I can't tell whether uh, I got too much sleep or too little sleep. It's like that line from the Thin Man. I woke up and I feel terrible. I must have not had enough to drink. Um, <laughs> carry on, everyone. One of the one of the great things about that the Befarners, the show I was just talking about, is they're always going to these mead, mead halls and drinking mead. mead out of mead out of horns and just getting <laughs> wasted on mead. I have, but the idea. horns are so good. I wanted them to drink out. Wait, of horns. can I can I say something though? I recently I was what was it? Someone in my house was like reading a book about ye olden days in which they were constantly drinking beer. And they were drinking all this beer because the water was contaminated. Yeah, and I was like, right. this beer must have been very, it's very, very weak beer. Weak. Yeah. Yes, well, exactly. Uh, yeah. Okay. I've been listening to and reading Samuel Pepys' uh, diary from 1660 to 1669. And every day he starts by having his morning draft. And, and basically, and also, by the way, he's drinking sack and a pint of wine. And he really runs the whole... He doesn't have a Tom Collins. Sack is what? Sack is like port or something. Can I give a more up to date example of? But this? wait, I was oh, gonna. Go but but my my beloved Anne tells me that 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 the morning draft was basically they thought it was good for them to have a a glass of beer in the morning. I mean, it depends what good for you means. It must have made the day different in some way, sure. unless it was like really, really, really weak. Right. Well, the oil of really conversation, imagine. but it wasn't filled with bacteria. I mean, it was it was not right. contaminated. That is right. really important. They weren't going to die. That's a big advantage. What I wanted to say before, I just reread The Secret History by Donna Tartt, where they oh, yeah. literally drink like fish every second of the day. And I just was like blown away by it. I mean, Bennington in the 80s, all you did was drink all day. It was like, I can't really imagine how they're functioning in the book. There's so much alcohol. No, they, and some they, there was also alcohol. Coke. There was also Coke. Yeah, there's some Coke, but because <laughs> Brett Easton Ellis is like a peripheral character, right? I mean, or a, a, he was a friend of Donna Tartt's at the time, I should say. And the book is dedicated to him, I believe. But yeah, the amount of drinking in that book is insane. All right, Slate Plus. So the topic today, if you were going to go into hiding, how would you do it? I've done, a, I've done some thinking. You start. I have I'll some start thinking us. too. Fine. So my first thought is, first of all, it would be really hard for me to do this because I have not prepared. Um, I have no, I'm very law-abiding. I have nothing. I have no cash. I have nothing in Bitcoin, which I think is the key thing. You need to have something in Bitcoin or in crypto. I have no gold. I have no secret stash. I don't really have people who would help me. All the people in my life are very law-abiding. I think I'm much more of the, if I were in trouble, I would count on hiring a great lawyer and getting myself off kind of crowd. That's not um, about going into hiding. Well, right. I know, Why are I you know. going into hiding? You, no, I what know. if it's for benevolent reasons and not because you knocked you, over the Brinks truck? Well... I don't know why you'd have to go into hiding for benevolent reasons, but okay. So first of all, I would probably think about going to the UK because I... That was just a taste of the cornucopia of glory that will come from this Slate Plus segment. So become a member of Slate Plus today and get all of it. Go to slate.com slash Plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. 
Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.